0: Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 44 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we have some really varied uh, guests and perspectives lined up, including an actual in-person interview with a good risk manager friend of mine, Matthew McEwen, Director of Risk Management at Coca-Cola European Partners. And I have to be honest with you, uh, being able to do an interview face-to-face again for the first time since March was was a really nice experience. And and hopefully with some light at the end of the tunnel regarding kind of um, the pending rollout of vaccines, hopefully there will be plenty more opportunities for face-to-face content in the new year and it's certainly something we are keen to get back to doing. But while Matt lives just down the road from me, our, our guest co-host and our third guest are a bit further afield. In the second half of the episode, we will be joined by Belinda Fortman, director of the Tennessee Captive Insurance section. But first, I am delighted to say our guest co-host is another good friend of mine, unfortunately one one and a half ponds away from me in the lovely Hawaii. And here is Matt Takamine, captive operations leader at Beecher Carlson. Matt, welcome to the pod.
1: It's so nice to be here, Richard. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Great to, great to get you on, Matt. Uh, and great to hear your voice as well, even if I can't see you. For, for those who maybe don't know, uh, Matt, could you tell us a little bit about your background in insurance and, and your role at Beecher Carlson?
1: Yeah, sure, sure thing, Richard. I've, I've been working with insurance companies and captives since uh, the late 90s, when I began my career with KPMG um, and the firm back then had a large insurance practice in Hawaii. Everything from PNC companies, life insurers, health insurers. When I was there, um, they all said most of the captives in the state of Hawaii. So I, I worked on all of those different types of insurance companies, basically since my first day with the firm. A third of my year was actually spent working on the largest insurer in the state, which is uh, you know, the BCBS affiliate here in the state of Hawaii. So by the time I got to be a, a manager, a senior manager at KPMG, I'd had a, a large portfolio of captive insurance companies that I was responsible for. You know, I had a really good relationship with all of the different captive managers uh, at the time. It's it's a really small community here. 2006, uh, Jason Flaxbeard called me to have lunch. You know, Jason really well. And we, we had a great relationship back then. And um, I worked on a, on a number of his accounts. And Jason was the head of, of Beecher Carlson's Hawaii office. He let me know that he'd been promoted to lead the company's captive practice nationally. And he wanted me to come over to head um, the company's Hawaii office. So, uh, having worked with all of the various captive managers and knowing how Beecher Carlson did things, they're very innovative in their approach to captives. Uh, Jason was a great guy, and he had a great team here. It seemed like a no-brainer to me to accept the position, um, but I didn't—at least not right away. I actually told Jason no at first. I had in my head that I was going to be a, a partner at KPMG. But
0: you're playing hard to get, by you <laughs> I
1: was playing a little bit hard to get, <laughs> um, but but I talked with Jason Jason further. I did did some soul searching. And um, ultimately accepted the position, and the rest is history. In hindsight, fourteen years later, I wouldn't you know, honestly, it wouldn't change a thing. I couldn't have made a better decision.
0: Yeah, good. Good to hear that story. And obviously, one of your roles at uh, Beecher Carlson is, of course, looking after operations. And I imagine this pandemic uh, has impacted your kind of operations quite considerably like it has at many other brokers and, and captive managers. What would be kind of just, uh, the, the standouts impacts it's had and, and kind of how you've tackled it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, the impacts have been tremendous. You know, we've been working at home since mid-March now, um, you know, like going on nine months. And I, I honestly feel really blessed and fortunate to work in an industry where we can be just really effective working from home. I know there, there's so many, um, especially here in in Hawaii with our, our tourist driven economy that are not as as fortunate and are going through really, really tough times. So, you know, we've been work, working at home since, since mid-March, like I said, and I, I don't think we're going to be back in the office anytime really soon. Maybe at the beginning of the year, we can reassess, see how things are going, but thankfully, you know, we have amazing clients and, and the best team and everybody's, really stepped up and done what they need to do to take care of our customers you know Pete Kranz, he's done a fantastic job and in a in ways we've, we've been um, we've been able to connect more meaningfully on a regular basis now I think you know, we do video conferences so regularly now I, I know a lot of people are in the same boat and it, it can it can be a little bit tiring being on, on camera all day um, with you know your, your clients and your 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 teams. But at the same time, it really lets us connect a little more closely. I think a little more deeper. A lot of board meetings that I do, you know, just by phone. Now we can see our clients who are restricted from traveling, of course, um, as well. So, um, so that that's been kind of interesting. It's also been really busy, you, you know, just as far as um, captive formations and feasibility studies. I personally haven't seen this much activity in in a number of years, um, probably since the since I first started working with captives. So I, I used to spend, um, as you and I were kind of talking about, I used to spend a lot of time on a plane and I would have expected to have all this extra time now to get work done. But somehow that that's all. That's not the case. It's been a lot of it's been going to working with companies on formations and feasibility studies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually just this week I've been doing quite a lot of research and and looking in you know Hawaii. We're going to talk about Hawaii specifically later on, but you know I was looking at the Hawaii captive sheet and it's got the kind of the, the licenses issued up until I think the end of the third quarter and and Hawaii is not alone, but there's lots of really interesting capital captive formations going on particularly in the United States at the moment, so it's going to be really fascinating to kind of uncover some of those at, at some point say on the operations theme Matt I understand Beecher does keep all their management and uh, administrative operations within the domiciles that you operate in largely rather than outsourcing those overseas as, as, as some you know other captain managers do as well uh, why do you choose that approach to kind of keep things local
1: it's a business decision. And thank, thanks for that question, Richard. We, we do not outsource any of our, our captive operations. You no, know, and it's something that we looked at outsourcing costs or outsourcing lowers costs, improves margins. It's a very competitive industry, but we feel like it lowers the quality of our services. It does a disservice to our clients by having um, work performed by less qualified, less experienced individuals. And that's just not part of our philosophy and how we take care of clients.
0: We're going to talk more about Hawaii in particular uh, in the second half of the episode, but we're going to hear now from another Matthew, and that is Matt McEwen, Director of Risk Management at Coca-Cola European Partners. Matt actually lives just down the road from me, so he popped around to sit in my garden, socially distanced, of course, uh, but in some light rain and some quite cold temperatures, actually. So. You may hear some birds squawking and nature in the background, particularly if it's not drowned out by me or Matt uh, shivering as well. And we discussed uh, broker consolidation, the hardening market and employee benefits. So Matt, I thought a good place to start, um, we'll come on to the, the hard market more specifically in a moment. But obviously, one of the other areas of activity we've seen in the insurance market over the last well probably 10 years generally but I think particularly in the last two or three years has been consolidation amongst the larger brokers obviously you do work with and have relationships with many of the large brokers how do you view the continued consolidation activity among large brokers and and by extension of course that means captain managers as well and and does it change the market in a in a tangible way for you do you think
2: yes Richard I think that's a and kind a of really valid question at this point in time because um, I do see it both as a risk and an opportunity. I think the opportunity is undoubtedly with the consolidation, potentially accessing more services, uh, access to human capital, intellectual property. But at the same token, I think that concentration of risk is a danger for risk managers, um, particularly, I guess, having that all oh, your eggs in one basket. Yeah, uh, We've seen it with the insurers particularly on the other side that where you have significant uh, relationships with insurers and appetite begins to change all of a sudden it can be what's your exit strategy and I think that's probably something that risk managers are going to increasingly have to think about you know what is my exit strategy am I really getting value by concentrating all my efforts on one go and is there a value to be had by diversifying my, my service provision Personally, at CCEP, you know, we have a, a couple of brokers. Uh, we did a broker review a couple of years ago. One of the brokers that we use is also our captive manager from Legacy. I think they do a really good job. Um, but yes, the I guess if we really had to go out to market and consider alternatives, there's not that much alternative. Yeah. So um, really, I think it's also a bit introspective. I think we also need to look at what services could we potentially in-house. Yeah. Um, as we mature our captive management practice.
0: Yeah, I know, and certainly we've had um, we've had Phil Clark from Vodafone on the podcast previously, and, and Phil touched a bit on that, how obviously they've got a very large captive in Malta, and they do do a lot yeah. of it in-house themselves, but they still lean on the likes of Marsh and others for certain services outside of that. So I think when captives get to a certain size, that definitely becomes more of an option, I imagine.
2: I think you're right. Um, I think really the opportunity I think we see is probably more on the accounting side. So probably... Maybe half of our fees are going to pay for like, localised accountants. Yeah. And if we were able to consolidate that and make the bookings you know, directly for the subsidiaries all consolidated into our reporting structures, it's a bit commoditised. So I think there's a really nice opportunity there to bring that in-house.
0: And that's not uncommon in Dublin. Is? I know quite a few captives in Dublin that do have in-house, they have, you know, captive, yeah. in-house captive managers that do, that do a lot of that. A few, a few spring to mind off the top of my head. Um, All right, let's talk about the hardening market then. We've Mm. just been having a a more off-the-record kind of conversation about (laughs) about (laughs) it over a coffee in my garden, Matt. Um, How do you envisage this hardening market changing the way captives are used by corporates, do you think? Is it just that the numbers get bigger or is there more meaningful change, do you think, than that? (laughs)
2: Well, before we say that, I know we're speaking in your back garden. I'm finding it hard to see the microphone with the, uh, with the steam coming out my, out my, <laughs> my mouth because it must be about one degree out yeah, here. Yeah, it's quite cold. Um, but, um, yeah, the hardening market, again, I think it comes back to that risk and opportunity. Uh, certainly for us, we're seeing that as a catalyst for change. You know, we, we've done uh, a lot of work, particularly with uh, one of my other functions that I, uh, I connect with, our, our ERM function. We've looked at the maturity in that, particularly about you know uh, risk tolerance or risk appetite, and, and in a roundabout way, using a lot of that knowledge gives us the firepower, of the armoury to really speak to the C-suite and say, you know, not only is an external market environment changing and likely to continue changing for the next 12, 24 months and beyond. Uh, but this is the real opportunity to get a little bit control back. Sounds like a bit like a Brexit type type <laughs> of uh, podcast. Yes, let's you know, let's take control back, our borders back. But I think there's a bit of taking a, a risk financing control back uh, to some extent, and that also gives opportunity because we can then really try and realign some of the risks that we've got identifiable in our ERM risk register, and actually begin to say, well, how do they really? You know, how are they really aligned with our risk financing programs? And there is a misalignment, you know, where uh, the risk financing is probably a little bit, you know, weighted towards the traditional type of risk. How could we actually, for the same monetary spend, provide additional support and relevance for the company? And I think that's really the big opportunity for me.
0: Another opportunity we hear a lot about. Uh, with captives at the moment and we we hear a lot about on the podcast particularly for our friends at at maxis who i know you know is employee benefits and and employee benefits continues to be a big growth area for captives all over the world and i think we expect that to continue what would your advice be for for any captive owner which is starting to embark on that journey of of bringing employee benefits into their captive because it is quite a different it's a whole different yeah. ballgame, isn't it, to the traditional P&C stuff that we've seen in captives traditionally. You hit the nail in the head, it is a different <laughs> ballgame
2: altogether. I think that you really have to go in it with your eyes wide open. You know, in some respects, some of the traditional stuff on the, the, the P&C side can seem a bit old-fashioned, but the EB programs, in a, in a sense, feels like a, a bit more of a dinosaur. It's very sluggish, it's very old-fashioned. I think it's right for change, and you know, particularly with technology changes happening with COVID-19, fantastic opportunity to really accelerate some some real benefits there. For me, I think it's about you know making sure you engage with the right people. So for us, you know, we did our feasibility study back in 2015. We brought the the programs in in 2016. So it's having the seat at the table not only for risk management, seat at the table for our HR folks. They felt as though they were part of the decision making, owned it then i think thereafter once we actually got that feasibility study approved it was then making sure there was a continuation of engagement so we actually had one of our vps from hr brought in as a board director to the captive again i think they're very good in terms of operationally understanding what eb programs are but less so in the financial disciplines and i think that was really the opportunity where they could uh, articulate the benefits of the program and how important this was at a local level But we were also able to educate them from other areas, such as, you know, the financial discipline, how the captive came together. So it was a bit of a, how can I say, you know, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours and helping to keep that continuum there. So that was, I think that's really the message for me is making sure you connect with the right people, engage with them.
0: And just lastly, then, and probably a tougher question to to answer: What would you like to see from you know EB fronting networks and other consultants that could improve the way captive EB programs are run? Because this is in, this is really important data, and it really you know, really touches home, doesn't it, to employees how these programs are run and, and what kind of what's in place. So what what do you think can be done better in the overall management of of these programs and implementation of them?
2: Do you know what? I think it'd be great if some of these uh, companies were almost a fly in the wall. You know, if you had secondments back in the, again, pre-COVID days, it'd be great if they actually came in and even just sat for a couple of weeks when you've got your month-end accounts to do or your quarterly accounts to do and you're waiting for that border row to come in and how it's going to look. And they see it from a risk manager's and a captive management's perspective. That would be a really good demonstration of just getting them to understand what we actually do with the information that they have to, you know, they they provide the timeliness of it, the accuracy of it, and how we look to deconstruct the numbers, you know, going from, like, cash accounting into real underwriting year. I think there is a recognition of that with a lot of these providers. But again, it comes back to that kind of, uh, dare I say it, that kind of Neanderthal dinosaur-type approach. It's it's very, it's ripe for change. You know, you think about some of the technologies that other functions are using... It, it shouldn't be taking as long. It shouldn't be as complicated. We really should be cutting through, getting good quality accuracy of data. I do think that that is the, a bit of the holy grail. Yeah. And I do think that if you know if one or more of these providers can really crack the code on that, you know that, that fit for growth with the opportunities that EB affords, I think that's going to be a real differentiator for some of these service providers to really be Relevant and value add to, to risk managers, captive managers.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks, Matt, for uh, my first in person interview since March. So it's starting, the rain's starting to get a bit heavier. So I think it's probably time we, uh, we call it a day. But thanks
2: very much. Thanks, Richard. A typical Scottish summer's day.
0: <laughs> Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat. And I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well you can execute a lost portfolio transfer which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And RNQ has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. So we will be back with Matt Takamine of Petra Carlson in a moment, but now we're going to hear from Belinda Fortman, Captive Insurance Director at the Tennessee Department of Commerce and Insurance. Belinda and I caught up around a month ago about her new role as the regulator for for captives in Tennessee, replacing Michael Corbett, and how she expects the domicile to develop over the coming years. Belinda, it's almost five months for you in in this new role and your background was in the commercial side of captive management with the likes of Kane, SRS, USA Risk and others all well known in the captive management space in the last kind of 10 years or so. What appealed to you in joining the regulatory side and, and how have you found uh, the transition into the regulatory side of, of captives?
3: Yeah, Richard, that's a that's a great question, and I have to say I'm honestly thrilled about joining um, the division, the Tennessee captive um, division, as the director. Um, I moved to Tennessee from Vermont in 2013, and it was for the sole purpose of supporting the growth of captive insurance in Tennessee. Um, so I view the role as director as a great opportunity to fulfill that vision. And really helping Tennessee grow from what was an emerging captive domicile to what I like to say, it the gold standard of the South. So it's, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. And, and, and frankly, as it relates to the transition, um, on a more personal level, I can't say that I really envisioned a career in state government. Um, but the truth of the matter is, we, we really run the captive vision as a business within state government. We focus on providing high, highly responsive, quality customer service, focus on remaining competitive with other domiciles, and we're really proud of the contributions that the captive division makes to the economic development of the state of Tennessee. I mean, I think it's worth noting that the economic impact of captives in Tennessee includes $16 million in revenue since inception. Total premium deposits of 6.5 billion and 3.1 million in annual taxes and fees. So, you know, with the support of the Tennessee Captive Insurance Association, we've grown the number of captive insurance companies from, there was just a few when I moved here in 2013, and now we have close to 700 risk bearing units today. Um, so in this role, I really look forward to continuing to um, contribute to that growth um, and again, see Tennessee become that that gold uh, standard of the South.
0: Yeah, no, really, really interesting. Uh, those those numbers are really quite impressive numbers. Those kind of risk bearing entities or risk bearing units, as as you refer to them. Um, where do you expect or, or or want to see growth? Do you think uh, in in Tennessee captive business? Because historically, I think maybe. During my time at Captive Review, so I'd say over the last five years or so, a lot of the focus in Tennessee has been on attracting Tennessee businesses to to move existing captives you know, home, whether that be from a, another U.S. state or from an offshore jurisdiction such as Bermuda or Cayman or, or wherever. Is that still the priority, do you think, for the state, or are you looking for more out-of-state business? Do you think there is out-of-state business that you can be attracting?
3: I do, actually. Um, you know, Certainly, Tennesseans are our top priority um, but we are experiencing a lot of growth in all areas within the captive uh, division. Um, we're seeing it come organically with the captives we already have here. I mean, as you as you may be aware, once uh, a captive owner has a captive, they often see new opportunities um, to utilize their captive insurance company. So the captives we have are increasing their programs and building premium. Um, we've got captives moving from other domiciles, um, onshore and offshore, actually and um the growth though is is really mainly new formations um and in truth our state welcomes the creation of captives from in-state or out-of-state businesses um as well as captives moving to tennessee from other other domiciles you know whether it be onshore or offshore you know we do have a very responsive and experienced captive regulatory team we have competitive premium tax rates our options for capitalization etc um are competitive but i think what Another factor that kind of differentiates us is we also have an extensive local service infrastructure for captives. We have local attorneys, local accountants, local actuaries. So it's really not a big surprise that we're experiencing the growth we we have in all these areas.
0: Yeah, yeah, and obviously that is definitely key to any the success of any captive jurisdiction, whether it be offshore or onshore, is having a an established or growing and, and fast developing local infrastructure in terms of those those types of firms that you mentioned, whether it be captive managers or actuaries, accountants, auditors, uh, etc. How do you then strike a balance between being a business friendly domicile? Um, which I guess is shorthand for wanting to to do a lot of business and attract attract uh, people to the domicile, and and ensuring, of course, that you're attracting good quality captives because we we know and we'll come on to on bees in a moment, but we know that there's lots of talk about, you know, abusive captives or sham captives out there. So how how do you draw that line to to make sure you're you're getting it right?
3: Yeah, that that, that is a really good question, Richard. You know, Tennessee is a serious domicile. We we do have very high standards. Um simultaneously, so yeah, we, we do indeed have a business friendly environment. But what that means is we have strong relationships with the key stakeholders in our industry and they trust us to regulate captives in a responsible way. We pride ourselves on working with captive owners and captive managers to create successful captive programs. They meet risk management needs of their owner and we, we help to make sure that they are well-structured and regulatable capital insurance companies. So that's really how we maintain that balance.
0: Just lastly, then... Belinda, uh, I mentioned just briefly the failure on B tax election and some captives abuse of it continues to produce bad headlines for the U.S. captive market. And to be honest, I've, I've actually lost track. Actually, of, sort of the play, state of play we're in with the amount of kind of uh, IRS letters or lawsuits going back and forth uh, between. And I'm, I'm going to try and make sure we do a wrap up of that at the end of the year. But is there anything regulators can be doing? Do you think to ensure so-called sham captives are not still being licensed. And how much of a concern do you think is this as a reputational issue across the the US captive market?
3: First of all, we as regulators don't regulate their tax position. We regulate their insurance program. And a successful captive program is based upon the risk management goals of the owner. As part of that process, We have a fairly rigorous captive application review process. When our analysts review a captive application, we consider the proposed business plan, and that includes the motivation of the owners for forming one. Further, we require that our captives utilize an approved actuary to determine that appropriate level of premium for the risk being covered. And... As a further step for due diligence, we also obtain a second actuarial review of that feasibility study to bring the risk of proving captives formed solely for a tax advantage um, It does reduce that risk So that's our main that's, what, that's our main way of minimizing the risk of bringing in sham sham captives. I mean so your second question had to do with reputation um, yeah I mean certainly the IRS activity in the captive space, yeah, it has had an impact on the reputation of captive insurance programs generally and, and really heightened the perceived risk in utilizing one. But that said, business owners are accustomed to a degree of risk. And for those with sufficient self-insured risk and when they utilize the services of an experienced captive insurance professional to ensure they properly structure their program, it goes a long way towards addressing and minimizing that risk for
0: them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and there are lots of lots of good captive managers, and you know, I don't I don't like to use the word captive promoters, but yeah, uh, you know, people who do kind of advance uh, or or promote uh, the use of captive insurance companies, and, and we know they they provide great benefits to businesses. Yeah. So uh, it, I just I'm just very conscious now all the time of making sure that the captive industry is. Is recognizing that there has been abuse out there and and, and it is actually on the captive industry itself to, to recognize that and and to play its part in, in getting rid of it. And I think I think that is starting to happen. But Belinda, I do really appreciate your time uh, coming on to the Global Captive Podcast.
3: Well, and thank you very much, Richard. I appreciate the invitation.
0: So great to get some insight from Belinda in Tennessee there. I now make that four U.S. states we've had regulators on the pod from since since we launched in March 2019. We've had uh, Dave, Sandy, and Christine in Vermont, of course. Uh, Steve Kenyon from Delaware early last year, and Vincent Goss, uh, possibly the best podcast radio voice I've ever heard, actually um, from Arizona last year as well. We need to get Vince back on, do some uh, do some plugs for us. Um, now, Matt, you're not a regulator, but there are f- a few better placed professionals to give us the lowdown on hawaii than yourself you're, you're very active within the hawaii captive insurance council are you still current president matt is that right
1: you know i, I just completed my my second oh. six-year term as as president of the hcic two days ago december 1st
0: oh well congratulations we'll have to get someone else on now uh no, <laughs> no i'm joking <laughs> um so matt can you uh can you tell us a bit about hawaii's history as a as a captive domicile and its profile and, and the kind of captives that uh, we can expect to see there
1: yeah, um, absolutely, Richard. You know, in 2020, it's been an incredibly challenging year for for all of us. But Hawaii's captive industry is larger, stronger, and more diverse than at any other time. I think in its 30 plus year history. And like we had talked about, I, I think I can offer a, a unique perspective just on you know in my involvement with the industry here. Um, as I'd said, I said, I just completed my second six year term as a director of the HCIc. Um, as you know, which is the, the trade organization that's comprised of and that supports Hawaii's 240-ish or so captive insurance companies and many service providers. I've long served as the, the board chair or president of the HCIC. And I, I feel the organization is vitally important to Hawaii's captive industry um, so that our, industry, or so that our um, industry owners, service providers, and the constituents here um, have a voice and representation when it comes to dealing with issues and legislation affecting the industry. Uh, I I pulled some numbers before getting on the pod with you this morning, Uh, 239 active captive insurance companies domiciled here in the state of Hawaii as of uh, September 30th, including 41 from Japan. Um, Those numbers make us the fifth largest in the U.S. by number of active captives. 31.7 billion in assets makes us second uh, in the U.S. and fifth worldwide. If you look at it, if you look at the state of Hawaii in terms of the size of companies that we have doing business here and 10.9 billion in premiums. Um, so pretty significant. Uh, hope. I think because of Hawaii's longstanding as a captive domicile, we're in our 35th year now, I believe, uh, coupled with the state's reputation for for stability and attracting quality companies over quantity. We tend to bring in a lot of um, large Fortune 500 companies as well as you know a lot of smaller mid-market companies that are looking for a quality captive insurance jurisdiction. You know, at the core of, of Hawaii's success is the the public private partnership between the State of Hawaii Insurance Division and uh, the Hawaii Captive Insurance Council. We've had great partners with, um, you know, Commissioner Hayashida, Deputy Commissioner Andrew Kurata. So yeah, it's been it's been really good. The captive industry has been one of those that you know it's been flourishing this year. Hopefully that trend continues into twenty twenty one.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think I think Hawaii is, um, yeah. A, 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 aside from its size, it's it's incredibly interesting, quite a unique domicile in a sense. Particularly, I think there's there's two reasons I, I say that. One is it's such a hotbed of, of uh, I don't know if hotbed's the right word, but it's a, it's a very popular choice of uh, of of domicile for Japanese companies, which I'll ask you to expand on in a second. But also the Silicon Valley, you know, there's so many Silicon Valley owned captives in Hawaii that it does seem to have carved itself a niche there uh, from kind of the, the Tech, the fast-growing tech industry, that have captives there, and some of like public information. So I'll name you know Google, Uber, and Lyft, Airbnb. We've had Laura Langone from Airbnb on the podcast Mm. this year, and their captives in Hawaii. So I think that makes Hawaii quite a cool domicile, in my opinion. And I'm sure you'll agree with me, Matt, on (laughs) on that. Um, Regarding Japan, then you mentioned the amount of Japanese captives in Hawaii. How has how has Hawaii ended up carving out that that kind of specialization and, and and what are the unique challenges associated with the Japanese insurance market when it comes to, you know, ultimately selling the captive proposition to insurance managers there?
1: Well, you know, like like I just mentioned, Richard, we have 41 companies from, from Japan now, which I believe makes us the world's leading destination for Japanese captive insurance companies. And
0: Yeah, I believe it must be, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, and just it, it's just commitment, dedication. We've been traveling to Tokyo and, and Japan. We've been to Osaka as well for over 15 years now. Om- almost every year, we were unfortunately um, not able to go this year, but no, it's just year after year we go and... Um, put on educational seminars for what captive insurance companies can do for Japanese businesses. So I, I think there, there's that, that targeted effort. In fact, once um, a couple of years ago, we went into Japan twice, one for, we did one one session for owners and one session for prospects. We've since, cons- since consolidated that, but you know, it's really just that that commitment and dedication, I think, to the, the Japanese captive market that's um, really reaped the benefits here um, there's also just cultural affinity and similarities. You know, we, we are a popular destination for folks from Japan and we have a lot, a lot of Japanese people here. We're, we're also um, pretty close, relatively speaking, compared to the East Coast or West Coast uh, for Japanese companies to, to travel to and do business with. You know, if you're thinking of time zones, setting up meetings, things of that nature, it's a lot easier to do, um, do a call with Hawaii um, if you're somebody sitting in Tokyo than it is to do. With somebody in on the, on the east coast of the U.S. Also, I think you know a lot of the service providers here. They have bilingual Japanese-speaking staff, and we've also tailored some of our our laws here, or the the captives' rules, um, or administrative rules here in the state of Hawaii, to make it easier for for Japanese companies to do business. They can have yen-denominated bank accounts. They can prepare their financial statements in in yen as well. So. All, all those little things that make it easier for for those companies to do business here.
0: Yeah, fantastic, and uh, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure. Having looked at some of those licenses uh, that have been issued this year, I can definitely spy a few that looked like they have come out of the Japanese market. So obviously, been further growth this year. Uh, just lastly, Matt, in terms of um, some other parts of your kind of day to day role at Beecher Carlson, and of course your involvement with HCIC, are there any particular bits of of legislation or uh, regulatory activity developing? at a federal level or across the states that, that you are currently kind of keeping an eye on in, in relevance to your, your captive clients and, and the Hawaii industry more broadly? Well,
1: you know, there, there's nothing too significant right now, Richard. I mean, and even though I'm not the, the president of the HCIC anymore, I'm continuing my role as government relations liaison. So yep. I keep a, keep close tabs on these things um, and working with the, the legislature here and the insurance commissioner's office. And of course, Jerry Oshida, who who you know well and is our, our legislative committee chair. But there, there's nothing too concerning out there. There's this, the state of Washington issues that you're well aware of and now Minnesota that we're monitoring. I know it's kind of in a holding pattern right now, but you're trying to see what goes on there. And also, it's not not really legislation, but the, the CIC services case that was just heard by the Supreme Court this week um, is also something that we're keeping a close eye on um, to see how court rules on A31B captive insurance companies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Those two items certainly ones that I'm keeping an eye on, and that that Washington State one. I think we should have some. We should have some more insight into what Washington State is thinking by the end of the year. I'm expecting that this report commissioned by. The insurance commissioner of Washington State, Mike Creedler, uh, is actually been developed by our friends at uh, Morris, Manning & Martin and at Milliman. And from, my, from what I've heard, that is expected to be produced uh, by the end of the year. Uh, and I think that, if I'm, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I expect it's going to actually outline what Washington State plans to do going, going forward. So we might know a bit more on that front uh, by the end of the year. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. Okay, great. Well, Matt, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And that's that's it for this week. Thank you to all three of our guests, Belinda Fortman of Tennessee, Matt McEwen of Coca-Cola European Partners, and to you, Matt of it Beecher Carlson. Thank you for coming on to the pod.
1: Thanks so much, Richard. It's great, great talking to you.
0: Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, Captives.